the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. When I served as an overseas missionary, like many missionaries today, I was part of a team. We were exactly that. We were a team. We were sent by the same organization. We were part of the same ministry. We were all part of a common mission. We worked together. We were under the same team leader. And within that team, though, we were all very different. And we all had different roles. Some of us were teachers, some of us were pastors, some worked with expats, some worked with youth. All of us worked with Albanians. But on top of our different roles, we all had different backgrounds. I was single. One couple, they were newlyweds. Some had kids, another was in the process of adoption. We came from different sending churches all over the United States. We were graduates of different seminaries, with one not having gone to seminary at all. One couple arrived shortly after I did, another a year before me, and two couples had been there for over a decade. And yet, we were all on the same team. This was a microcosm of Christianity as a whole. Different backgrounds, different roles, different times of salvation. All unique, with different ministries, but all on the same team. We get this. Well, what exactly does it mean to be on this team on a practical level? How do we live out a team mentality, a team spirit, if you will? Well, I believe the answer for us is in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 10 through 12. I invite you to turn there with me. We have been studying verse by verse through 1 Corinthians, and we are coming to the home stretch, the tail end. And we still find valuable advice and example in these closing words, the farewell, the final greetings of the Apostle Paul to the Corinthian church. This is the ancient Corinthian church 2,000 years ago. This morning we'll be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 10 through 12. Let me read that for you. Now if Timothy comes, see that he is with you without cause to be afraid. For he is doing the Lord's work, as I also am. So let no one despise him, but send him on his way in peace, so that he may come to me, for I expect him with the brethren. But concerning Apollos, our brother, I encouraged him greatly to come to you with the brethren. And it was not at all his desire to come now, but he will come when he has opportunity. This morning, we're going to see... Five cliches, five cliches that characterize Christian camaraderie. Now, cliche is typically these days a saying that has become overused so that it's lost its originality. You almost expect people to say certain cliches in certain circumstances, but they're overused because they're usually fitting and true. Although not usually associated with Christianity, These cliches will hopefully help us remember some important biblical lessons. 
And so our points are going to be some common cliches you may have heard, may have used yourself, five cliches that characterize Christian camaraderie. Cliche number one, don't kill the messenger. Don't kill the messenger. Let me read for you again verse 10, just the first part of it. Paul says, now if Timothy comes, see that he is with you without cause to be afraid. See that he can come with you to you without having to be afraid of what's going to happen. Now we know that at this point, at the time that Paul is writing this letter, Timothy is already on his way to see the Corinthians. And since, as we have seen throughout 1 Corinthians, Paul has endured opposition, he has endured unloving treatment from them, he is asking them, please, do not treat Timothy the same way. Don't treat Timothy the way you have treated me. Now, Timothy is a familiar name to us. He is well known as a member of Paul's inner circle at this time. As I mentioned, Timothy is already en route to Corinth. And we know this from chapter 4, verse 17 in 1 Corinthians, where Paul says that he has sent Timothy to them. So even before they've received this letter, as he's writing this, he says, I've sent Timothy. He's on his way. Now in Acts chapter 19 and verse 22, we learn that Erastus is with Timothy, and they first went to Macedonia on their way to Corinth. That's the same route that we talked about last week, that they would take them around the Aegean Sea a long way by land, a longer way, but that was so that they could visit the various churches in the Roman province of Macedonia, which is on the northern tip of the Aegean Sea, rather than just going straight across the Aegean, which would have gotten them there much quicker. Now, the same issues that we've discussed last week and several times over this study regarding Paul's arrival... Um, also pertained to Timothy and whoever is traveling with him. Travel back then was difficult. It was unpredictable. There was no modern engineering or modern machinery. And so a definite arrival date could not be given. It takes a long time and things can happen. They're also ministering to several churches in Macedonia for an undetermined amount of time. And so there's any number of issues and opportunities that could lengthen or shorten their trip. All that to say, nobody could say with certainty when Timothy would arrive, we know he's on his way. Now look back at the verse. The word if in that phrase, if Timothy comes, can be a little uh, misleading in English. It is better taken as when, as the ESV translates it. Obviously, there's the chance due to travel dangers and frankly, Christian persecution at the time and where Christian death was not out of the question, that Timothy would never arrive. But Paul is expecting him to be there. He just doesn't know when. In other words, if signifies uncertainty of the time of arrival, not whether or not he will come. Now, when he does arrive, Paul is instructing the Corinthians, and this gets more to our point, essentially, be nice. Be nice to Timothy. You're not being nice to me. I implore you, be nice to Timothy. And the fear that he doesn't want Timothy to have is not due to physical danger, but the harsh treatment that Paul has endured from the Corinthians. In fact, would you turn back a few pages to 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and look at verses 17 through 21. I made mention of it earlier because it's here that we see that he has already sent Timothy, but look at the context. 
1 Corinthians 4, 17 through 21. Paul writes, For this reason I have sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, and he will remind you of my ways which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church. Now some have become arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I shall find out not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. What do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? If you remember, this was Paul explaining and talking about how they've been treating him. And they've been saying, listen, you're all talk. And you're acting as if I'll never come and you'll never have to confront me face to face with this bitterness, with this questioning of theology and doctrine. But I will come and then I'm going to find out if it's just words or if you're really willing to stand up to the truth in the face of an apostle. He calls it arrogance. And he tells them, listen, when I come, are we going to come with hugs and kisses? Or am I going to have to confront you because you continue to hold these wayward, wrong beliefs, these heretical beliefs? Now think about Timothy now. Paul is an apostle. Paul has the greater influence. He has a greater authority. And so if they are willing to push back on his authority, there's no telling how they would treat his child in the faith, Timothy. In fact, it's safe to say that if some are so vocal and strongly opposed to Paul and his teachings, then that sentiment would naturally overflow into his representative, Timothy. Not just because of who he is, but also, as we just read, he is specifically sent by Paul to remind them of what Paul has taught them. And it is exactly what Paul has taught them that they are pushing back against. I want to give you a little side note that some of you may be asking already. If Paul has already sent Timothy when he writes this letter, before he even finishes the letter, which we can assume didn't just take like 20 minutes, it might have taken several days to write, and then he sends it after he has sent Timothy, the Corinthians are now receiving this letter many, many days, if not weeks, after Timothy has already left, wouldn't Timothy have already arrived? Great question. Thanks for asking. Very easy, and it goes back to that invisible map that I drew you. Paul sent the letter directly across by ship, and so it would have been there very quickly, whereas Timothy was going the long route, taking several days, if not weeks, to travel, and then stopping in Macedonia to minister to several different local churches there. And so even with this many-day head start, the letter would have gotten to Corinth before Timothy got there. Back to our text. It helps us, and we need to understand, that the cause of animosity toward Paul was bad doctrine instigated by false teachers. Remember, this was a time and a place in where religion was very prominent. You had the largest religion, which would have been the polytheistic religion of the Roman culture back then. Zeus and Aphrodite and all of those gods 
and goddesses. But of course, Judaism was also strong there as well. And many of these converts to this new religion called Christianity were former worshipers at those temples or in those synagogues. And so they, many of them brought with them this kind of residual thinking and pattern of life from their false religions. They were surrounded by false religions. This wasn't like today where it says, well, I want to find another church, and you're Googling, oh, that one's 30 minutes away. It was everywhere. They would walk out of the house church that, where they were worshiping on a Sunday morning, and then they would see a temple there. They would see a, a priestess. They would see a temple prostitute. They were everywhere. Some of these people would be in their own homes. And so some of these people that believed other things would come in and infiltrate the church, and they would persuade them to believe things contrary to what Paul was teaching them, contrary to what God was teaching them. And Christianity being a new religion, they couldn't go back and say, well, let me, let me Google some sermons. Let me look at some blogs. Let me look at some commentaries. They couldn't even say, let me consult the New Testament. And plus, they were already tending towards certain things because of their past religions and the pressures from church, from society rather and family. And you can see how they could easily fall into the trap of heretical beliefs. The main problem with this, though, is that Paul had been there and he was very clear on what the truth was. In fact, it wasn't just them believing random things. They were believing and reacting against what Paul had taught. So they knew what Paul had taught and they're saying, I don't think what Paul said was right because this guy over here believes such and such. And this was a problem. And so... Because it was bad doctrine from false teachers that was causing this reaction and this animosity toward Paul, we need to understand that this was the danger in their treatment of Timothy as well. Because he stood for the same things, he was going to teach the same things, he was going to remind them of what Paul taught them and what that meant. Now, I want to be clear, Paul's request that this attitude not be directed toward Timothy in no way excuses their attitude towards Paul, because again, it's rooted in bad theology. For us, if we want to avoid this as a people, as a local church, that people would not be afraid to come in, we must first study the Scriptures. We need to know what the truth is So we don't hear truth and react against it because we already know that is true. That guy's accurate. To hold up our fists and say, no, I don't think that's right because you just don't know the Scriptures, whereas all along this individual is teaching you the Scriptures. We must align ourselves with the truth and we must align ourselves with those who teach and profess the truth. This is why you're here and not at the churches you used to go to, because you want to align yourself with people who teach and hold to the truth of the Scriptures. Now from there, we need to be careful that we are not a church where people are afraid or have cause to be afraid simply, again, because they hold to the truth. Now that seems foreign to us. That would probably be something that is very common in an extremely liberal church where they're not teaching the truth, and so you're like, well, I'm kind of scared to come here and tell them my views on whatever it may be. So that's foreign to us in, in, to a certain measure, to a large degree, in our church. 
But I can tell you that I have been in conversations and I have been in situations where I know that they are keen to criticize me simply because of the seminary that I attended. Simply because of the church that I attended. Because of who the pastor is. Who was a mentor of mine. Where I served as a deacon for a decade. That all goes out the window and it's just because of an individual or the name of a seminary they want to attack me. Even in seminary, keeping in mind I went to two diff- graduated from two different seminaries, I had professors, professors who wanted to attack me and some other friends of mine who graduated from the same previous seminary simply because they knew where I got my master's degree. I never spoke of that. I never tried to defend the president. I didn't bring up anything. In fact, I remember in that particular class, I hardly spoke at all. But he knew where I got my master's of divinity simply because on his roll sheet, it says where everyone graduated from. And that professor in a very world-renowned seminary wanted to attack us simply, and I'll just say it, because we are somehow associated with John MacArthur, giving me cause to fear in attending a class simply because of where I graduated, where I used to minister, where I used to serve, having never said a word about any of those things. I get it. There are people who are not fans of various pastors. But to be outspoken in such a way for no other reason that you're just not a fan of some individual makes no sense. We we must not be a church where people are afraid to visit because they align with the truth. The truth. Not politics, not views on vaccines or any political, personal preferences. We cannot be a church where people are afraid to speak the truth. Now, this probably wouldn't really apply to the people we invite to stand here and preach to us. They know who we are, where we stand, what our doctrinal statement is, and so they're not going to be afraid to preach the truth. But what about in our conversations? What about in what we share about in small group, in men's group, in women's group, just having lunch with others? Do you make people uncomfortable simply because they believe the truth? We need to be careful. And as we see with other co-laborers with Paul, when they're sent to a particular church or group of churches in a region, they come as an emissary, as a representative of Paul. Ultimately, however, they are ambassadors of Jesus Christ. And more than being sent by Paul, this is what should make the Corinthians show respect and attentiveness to those who bring the truth. And that leads us to our second cliche that characterizes Christian camaraderie. There's no I in team. There's no I in team. Look at the end of verse 10 and on to verse 11. Speaking of Timothy, he says, For he is doing the Lord's work as I also am. So let no one despise him. 
The reason Timothy should not be mistreated is because, like Paul, he is doing the Lord's work. The word doing means to carry out, to accomplish, to work at something. And the Greek tense tells us that this is a characterization of Timothy. He is always doing it. It's something that he has committed his life to. He has dedicated his life to the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. As such, Paul says, no one should despise him. Literally, treat him with contempt to consider him as nothing to think little of. The word so indicates that they are not to despise Timothy because he is doing the Lord's work. And in his ministry to the Corinthians, Timothy is not to be looked down upon because of the message he brings from Paul, nor his explanation of that message. One of the favorite verses of young people, we find Paul writing to Timothy, let no one look down on your youthfulness. Why? He goes on to explain the godliness, his calling. And so it's not about his physical characteristics, it is the truth that he brings. Listen, those who are busy doing the Lord's work, whether vocationally or voluntarily, whether full-time or when time allows, should be shown respect. Just as you as a sports fan has respect for athletes or an engineer has respect for those who are the cutting edge in their field, so believers should have respect for one another as we all serve the Lord together. How much more because we're doing it together and we know how hard it is, how challenging it is, how there are places where we go and there is a fear of speaking out boldly. We must work together. We must have respect for one another. We must honor one another. Not judge, not criticize, not mock. Respect. For Timothy... He was to be shown the utmost respect as a representative of the Apostle Paul. We must remember that we are all on the same team. And as a team, we must work together. Most likely all involved in ministry in different capacities, such that we may not even be able to get directly involved in another's ministry. But we can work as a team through prayer for one another, through knowing what's going on, encouraging one another, supporting one another. Back when I was in college, a couple years ago, no, just kidding. My university, although most of them, some did, one name you'll recognize, but most did not really, they, they made it to professional sports, but didn't really do too well there. But when they were in college, which was also when I was there, our university had some of the top collegiate athletes in the NCAA at the time. In basketball, we had the O'Bannon brothers. In football, we had Skip Hicks and J.J. Stokes. We won a lot of trophies in the few years that I was there. And I remember one year, the motto of the football team, which they would pick before the season began, and they would print it in large banners, and being part of a larger, larger university in the NCAA, the games were all on television, and so all the ESPN and all the news people, they would know what the motto of each team was. And one year when I was there, during the time of Skip Hicks and J.J. Stokes, the UCLA football team's motto was, there is no I in team. Which, if you're not familiar with that, it's a play on words. 
meaning that if you spell out the word team, T-E-A-M, there is no I. And what it means figuratively is that a team works together. There is no one individual that should go out there and try to be the star and be a ball hog. Everyone should try to do everything together to support one another. And you can understand why they came up up with this motto when they had someone, as many of you know, eventually going out and doing well in the Niners because there were guys who could want to just make it all about themselves. And it was during one particular football team, or football game rather, that was broadcast on television where one of the sportscasters mentioned as they watched one play, you know, the UCLA team this year, their motto is, there is no I in team, but if you look real hard, there's a me. And he was making a pointed accusation against one of the players on the team during that very game. You see, despite the motto, there were still a couple players that were playing not for the team, but clearly for themselves. Perhaps they were close to graduation. They knew that the NFL scouts were there, and so they wanted to make a name for themselves. But for anyone who has played sports, you know that this ultimately hurts the team in terms of wins, but more importantly, it hurts the team in terms of morale. In the same way, despite the Bible's teaching regarding fellowship and working together, sometimes we as a church do not work as a team. There's no I in team, but if you try real hard, you'll find a me. And this hurts the church in terms of holiness, but also in terms of encouraging others in their ministries. How do we do this? How can we be selfish in ministry, focusing only on ourselves? There's a few ways that I could think of. This is, again, not an exhaustive list. But the first one that comes to mind is by not serving at all. By not serving at all. There are no bench warmers allowed in the Scriptures in the New Testament. You can't just be a part of the team, suit up on Sunday mornings, and then don't get involved the rest of the time. To say, yeah, I'm on the team, look at my jersey. But then you don't get involved, you don't serve. That hurts the team. That's where the analogy falls short because on a team there are people who are on the bench. But in the New Testament, we are all given a spiritual gift. We are all commanded to serve. So there's no bench at all. And as much as we as a church exist to serve you, you exist to serve us. Because we all serve the Lord. And this is how He wants it. Another way that we can practice, uh, fail to practice being a team player is by negative influence. Negative influence. Imagine, and you've seen this, you've seen this on television if you watch sports, where there's clearly a star player on certain teams. And when their teammates make one little mistake or don't pass the ball to that star player, you see them right on television. You don't hear the words, but they are yelling at their teammate. They are reprimanding them. But how do we do this in the church? Negative influence. Criticism. Gossip. Judging. Insisting that our way is the right way. 
And we know these things are a violation of the commands of our Lord to love, to consider others as more important than ourselves, Philippians 2. All the one another's. But on that list and right up there with criticism and gossip is the failure to encourage. It's not just sins that we commit by vocalizing negativity, whether to someone's face or behind their back, but it's not proactively encouraging because it's a sin of omission that violates 1 Thessalonians 5.11, which says, encourage one another and build up one another. We are quick to point out flaws on the one hand and on the other, praise people, but only behind their backs. We need to encourage others to their faces. Not false modesty, not lip service, biblical encouragement. Speak up. They say it's hard because I'm hurting. We all are. Let's encourage one another. I've said it before, I'll say it again. What it takes to point out the faults in what people do, it takes absolutely nothing. It takes zero effort. All it does is for you to lay back and let your sin nature take control. It takes effort to encourage. If it takes effort to change our hearts and our minds and our perspectives to love. It reminds me of our Q&A a couple of weeks ago. Someone asked about lies and within that question was brought up white lies. And it occurred to me after the Q&A that if we weren't so critical there would be no need or temptation for white lies. Think about it. When do we tell white lies? When we are responding to a question about something that is subjective. If it's objective, it wouldn't be a white lie, it'd be just a lie. A white lie, to use cliches, are things like, does this look good on me? Does this make me look fat? Do you like what I made you? And we're tempted to tell a white lie because we don't want to hurt someone's feelings because in our minds, the answer is no, and the answer is always no because we're so negative, we're so critical. If we can train ourselves to love in such a way that we are just humble, we are grateful, we are just blown away by anything, then we don't see the negative. They may not believe you when you're truly telling the truth in your heart. They think you're telling a white lie, but if you truly believe that, and how do we get there? Because we train ourselves to not be like, oh yeah, she just doesn't look good. He just doesn't look good in that. He's too short. He's too tall. He's too fat. He's too thin. This is too greasy. This is too burnt. What about this? What about that? What about that? And we, we're just critical. So of course you're tempted to tell white lies. I would venture to say that your white lies, if it's constant, it's not even about the other person's feelings. It's to cover up your own guilt for being such a nasty person. It takes zero effort to be critical. That's who we are. In fact, that's why in Hebrews 10 it says we need to consider. Consider, that means to weigh heavily, to think about, to take time to think about how to encourage one another to love and good deeds. It takes effort. We can be so negative 
so ungrateful, so critical? Do you truly believe that marriage is a gift from God and wake up every morning not ready to criticize your spouse for what they did or didn't do, but just blown away? Blown away that the Lord would give you such a wonderful gift. Flaws, of course, that's the point. We all have flaws. Are you blown away by that? I'm not talking about rules and biblical parenting, but are you just critical of your kids? You have forgotten what a blessing it is. You have forgotten how after year after year after year of negative pregnancy tests, finally positive, God has blessed us, and you're blown away and you're overjoyed. And then they hit the terrible twos and just like, what's the matter with this kid? Right? We've lost the humility. We've lost the gratitude. We have lost the focus on the amazing grace of God because we think we're worth something. But our only worth is in Christ and what He has given us. And we have to understand that. Otherwise, you're not going to be a team player. Think about every reason I have given you that constitutes not being a team player. Not serving, not encouraging, doing, being negative. All of those involve pride and selfishness. It's finding the me and team rather than recognizing there is no I. And that critical spirit and pride is going to remove you from being a team player But friends, repent of that, repent of that, and you've created a significant boost to the holiness and excellence of the church. You influence people whether you like it or not, whether you know it or not. I know. I know that there are wrong things, poorly timed things, discouraging things that I have said to some of you that I don't even realize that you've thought about for days and weeks. You know how I know that? Because I think about that too, of things that people have said to me. That's what we're like. It influences people. It changes people. Be a team player. There's no I in team. Thirdly, the third cliche, parting is such sweet sorrow. Look at the second part of verse 11. Paul says, but send him on his way in peace. Not only is Paul asking the Corinthians to receive Timothy well, but also to send him off well. Paul uses the same word for send that we saw in verse 6. And if you recall, that means not only to say goodbye, but to provide for the journey. Anything he might need. Food, water, uh, money, even traveling companions for his safety. And this is not something you do for someone you despise. This is not something you do for someone you don't like or treat unfairly. And we can see that they're not just to grin and bear it while he's there to the duration of Timothy's visit, but they are to have a true love, a true respect for the faithful servant of their Lord so that everything from his reception to his goodbye is in line with biblical brotherhood. The concept of sending someone away in peace was a traditional saying that we see throughout the Old and New Testaments. For Paul, there may have been nuances of the traditional Jewish shalom, which would include the provision of his needs, as I just mentioned. Like many things in life, Paul would hope 
that Timothy's parting from the Corinthians was bittersweet. We get this. We get this when we have friends or family that visit that we adore. Maybe even strangers that we've come to adore during their visit. We don't want them to go. We want to spend more time with them. We want to make more memories, as, I, as they say. It's always a strange saying to me, by the way. Let's make more memories. But the parting is sorrowful. It is bitter. But at the same time, there's a sweetness to their departure. We want to get back to our normal lives. Back to life. And you desire the same for them. That they go back to their families, to their jobs, to their own beds and their own homes. And so it's bittersweet. Parting, we say, is such sweet sorrow. For the Corinthians... This was a minister of the gospel that was visiting, so part of the sweetness of his departure would be a hopeful desire for others to be blessed through Timothy's ministry as well. And we can relate to this through things like people moving on from our church to another church, and we don't want to see them go, but we hope that wherever they go, those people will be blessed by their ministry. Or even our missionaries that visit for just a weekend or a weekend we're about to have with a guest speaker. We enjoy them. We enjoy their company. We don't want to say goodbye, but we understand that there is blessing in sending them off to their home churches, to their mission field, to their people. And whoever the Christian is that is visiting, and in whatever capacity it is, you have to ask yourself, is their departure only a relief? Maybe this isn't even overnight. This is just someone for dinner. Just can't wait for him to go. Or is there a sorrow there? And when there is relief, is it purely selfish? Or is there a joy in others being blessed? Some of us avoid hosting altogether. Because we can't get past our own comfort, keeping things tidy the way we want or just sacrificing in general. Hebrews 13.2 says, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. We are to show hospitality even to strangers. And this is, of course, preceded by a verse that instructs us to continue loving the brethren. So this includes believers as well. Are you hospitable? Are you a lover of strangers? Or are you a lover of the brethren? Part of the sweetness of saying goodbye to Timothy would be sending him along back to rejoin the Apostle Paul. And that leads us to our fourth cliche regarding Christian camaraderie. There's strength in numbers. There's strength in numbers. The end of verse 11 says, so that he may come to me for I expect him with the brethren. The fact that Paul wants Timothy to rejoin him comes as no surprise. Despite all that Paul has accomplished and all that he is known for, he always worked with a team. These co-workers would change depending on the tour, depending on the location, and these individuals would work with him on his missions in various capacities. Some were fellow preachers and teachers alongside the apostle. Others were known for staying put in their city, but housing them, caring for Paul. Others stayed and opened up their homes for the house churches. Others served as secretaries who recorded his letters. 
Timothy was no exception, as indicated not only by this passage, but other mentions of him in Acts and as well as Paul's epistles, not the least of which, of course, are First and Second Timothy, which were written to Timothy. In this case, Paul wants him back in Ephesus, along with those he is traveling with, along with the brethren, as Paul mentions. For our part, again, we know that Erastus is with him. That's the only name we have. There could have been others. And that cliche, their strength in numbers, is one that holds true in the church. The fellowship and building up of each other implies a team mentality, each other. There has to be people within that pool of one another, each other. And this team mentality creates a synergistic effect. You know what that means? It means that we can accomplish more together than we could do on our own. It means 1 plus 1 plus 1 plus 1 plus 1 equals 30. Everything from iron sharpening iron in Proverbs 27.17 to the multiple times it is called for two or three witnesses for confirmation in the New Testament all allude not only to the benefit but the necessity of a group. There is strength in numbers. We are not to do this alone. We are never called to do this alone. We cannot do it alone. This this is why God has created this. Why not just read the Bible in your home? Why not, as many services were back then 2,000 years ago, people just go from house to house, preach a sermon, then preach a sermon, preach a sermon, as people would do with selling various goods. We come together because we need each other. We cannot do it alone. God established the local church and set in motion all the way in the beginning the regular fellowship and breaking of bread for a reason. And along with the intercession and sympathizing of our great high priest, the church is here for the glory of God through the mutual edification of believer to believer. There is strength in numbers. And it's not just counting how many people came this Sunday. You get that. The church is to be a family that is involved with one another's lives. This isn't some sort of weird modern contraption that we just need you here together because the more body heat there is, the more it pays our electric bill. You get It's not just your physical presence. It is your spiritual and emotional, sacrificial involvement with one another. We need one another. And that strength in numbers is only complete when every number is accounted for. Can we glorify God if not everyone is participating? Of course we can. Will we still meet if not everyone is here? Of course we will. Will people be encouraged? Will they grow? Will they be prayed for? Will we have small groups? Yes, we will. But we are incomplete unless every single Christian is involved in ministry and that trickles down to the local church. There is strength in numbers. There is completeness in numbers. Well, let's move on. We're looking at five cliches that characterize Christian camaraderie. Don't kill the messenger. There's no I in team. Parting is such sweet sorrow. There's strength in numbers. And finally, number five, there's a time and a place for everything. There's a time and a place for everything. Look at verse 12. But concerning Apollos, our brother, 
I encouraged him greatly to come to you with the brethren, and it was not at all his desire to come now, but he will come when he has opportunity. Paul now moves on from Timothy and mentions that he has encouraged Apollos, who was the former pastor, a leader within the Corinthian church, to visit them. But Apollos is saying, no, not right now. Now, we know that Apollos had a very strong impact on the Corinthians to the degree, if you remember back to the factions in chapter 3, Apollos is one of the people that they have wrongly associated with when they said, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Christ. These are not factions that the leaders of the church wanted, but that the Corinthians created in their own pride, their own infighting. Because of the connection Apollos has with the Corinthian church, despite the misguided allegiance to him, Paul has strongly encouraged him to visit, but he has said, not now. Now, this doesn't mean that Apollos and Paul are divided. They're on good terms. They're friends. It's simply that Apollos doesn't think that this is the right time for him to visit. We aren't told why he feels this way. It may be that the factions are still fresh and he doesn't want to feed them. It may be simply that he is otherwise occupied. And I want to point out the phrase again, now concerning. Again, it indicates that the Corinthians have asked Paul about him and have likely asked when he is coming again. Now, this is a good reminder that even though they are on the same team, Apollos has the Holy Spirit. He's a believer. He's following Christ. He can make his own decisions. And we know from Scripture that there's an order of authority such that we must obey our church elders, our parents, our own husbands. That being said, Paul makes it clear that Apollos is a big boy. And he can make ministry decisions on his own while still being on the same team. For the Christian, there's a time and a place for everything. Now we must recognize that that must be sought prayerfully. It must be sought discerningly according to the revealed will of God, which is a fancy way of saying the Bible. And as an added bonus, we see affirmation of what Paul has taught in this letter. In chapter 3, he mentions that he wasn't the only person that is responsible for the Corinthian spiritual growth. He says Apollos was involved as well. Team mentality. He knows what the Lord has done through him, but he's not taking all the credit because he knows he doesn't get all the credit. In chapter 4, he talked about the stewardship that he has as an apostle. Paul is not holding jealously to the Corinthians church as if it was his ministry. Those are my people. Again, he's a team player. And as such, he trusts everyone to fulfill their role properly. And so what we must remember that we are a team. We work together. We must not fight each other. Some of you used to play football with your friends on the playground or in the park. You didn't have jerseys as a as a team would have. It's just a bunch of guys playing, and so sometimes you would be confused who's on whose team, especially when there's a dog pile. And someone's trying to grab the ball from you because they think you're on the opposing team, and you look, and it's your teammate, and what do you do? You yell, same team, same team, nice and loud, so we know, stop fighting me, we're on the same team. 
I feel like we need to do that sometimes. Same team. Don't say that. We're on the same team. He's on the same team. I get you didn't like what happened on Sunday, but same team. Same team. We come and we say, yes, we want to hear solid preaching, but then we're not involved. We need to grab those people and say, hey, same team. Come on. Same team. Let's go. Small group, Tuesday night, same team. People are praying for this person. Do you, do you even know? Has you, have you been looped in? Same team. Same team. I want to mention too that in our church we have membership. And if you're not a member, that doesn't mean you can't serve. There are some areas for obvious reasons, such as working with the children, that we require you to be a member, as well as have a background check. Safety issues. But you know what I found more and more? It's not people who want to serve and say, well, I'm not a member yet, so I can't serve. There's more and more people who say, well, I'm not going to become a member because I don't have time to get involved. It's not about membership. It's about Christianity. It's about the one another's. Now, this isn't about coming up and playing guitar. Although if you can, you know, you're welcome. We need some help. But the one another's. You say, what are the one another's? And I use that term a lot and I realize it, it may not be uh, as obvious to some people. It's simply all the commands in the New Testament that end with one another. Encourage one another, love one another, admonish one another. That is Christian ministry. It's not having a title and doing stuff on Sunday morning. It is praying, it is encouraging, it is getting involved in people's lives, but you can't do that if you don't know them. You can't do that if you don't know what to pray for, what they're struggling with. Oh, I didn't. Your daughter has cancer? I didn't even know you were married and had kids. We don't know because we don't get involved. Some of us don't even want to go as far as to receive the church emails or get in the group chats where all these prayer requests are listed. We are on the same team, same team! Not because you're a member, not because you like our logo, not because you've been here for more than six months, not because you know the secret handshake. There's no secret handshake. But because you're a Christian and the Lord has led you to this church. Same team. And all of these cliches. Don't kill the messenger. There's no I in team. Parting is such sweet sorrow. There's strength in numbers. There's a time and a place for everything. All of these are true because we are all on the same team. We all have a part to play and we are all called to get involved. But most importantly, most importantly, we are a team because we all serve the same coach. Same team. And it is this final and most important truth that is going to give you the right team mentality. Ultimately, we are serving the same coach. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You so much for Your goodness to us in bringing us together. 
thank you for your wisdom and sovereignty that even in a place as liberal as this, you have put local churches that teach your word and live out your word. Give us all wisdom, Lord, and how do we can get involved and those of us who are involved, how we can get more involved. And for all of us, how we can get involved with the right heart attitude. Help us to see this team mentality. Guard us against having a a lone ranger mentality of doing things just ourselves or just with our family. Lord, we know that you have called us here in this particular room for a purpose that there is someone else in this room that we can encourage, that we can serve, that we can build up, that we can confront. Help us, Father. Lord, thank you that we stand up for the truth. We know that it is only by your grace that we believe what we believe. Even after salvation, it is only your grace and mercy that has brought us to the right understanding and interpretation of the truth but protect us from thinking in the midst of this liberal world that that is all it takes. Help us to get involved. Use us in our personal walks, but also in our ministries to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.